This is Talk Is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of BC, brought to you by Sitka Come along as we bring conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Well, aren't you handsome, Mr. Gregory Rensmag, with your WSF hat and your svelte beard and such? Well, this is my my handsome morning attire. You're not looking so bad yourself there. You're, <laughs> you're starting to scruff back in. Yeah, yeah. We uh, I took it down to the hardwood and then uh, figured, uh, well, it's that time of year. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty awesome, man. Um, what a cool podcast, Mr. Aaron Snyder, the one and only. Um, awesome uh, chat with him. And uh, that's on the heels of, we're about to drop registration for our Sleuths Conservation and Mountain Hunting Expo. So Kamloops 2023, anyone that knows about our convention and AGM, we've moved. We're moving to Penticton, British Columbia, February 23rd and 24th. We got an epic, epic weekend planned. Rebranded in the sense that we're the Sleuths Conservation and Mountain Hunting Expo, uh, creation of Joe Humphreys. And uh, we're super stoked about this event. We have a lineup through the roof friday night keynote who is it talk to me is friday night is that jules julie that, mcqueen no no julie mcqueen so uh the one and only julie mcqueen um the queen of carbon uh, president of carbon tv uh julie is a force in um the outdoor industry and she's uh, a woman that has gone above and beyond and a great keynote Super stoked. We're not announcing our Saturday night keynote yet. That's coming. Uh, seminars. And, uh, you know, this Mountain Hunting Expo is going to be Western Canada's event to come to if you're a mountain hunter. So let's talk some names. Who's coming? Oh, man. We got uh, working on a good lineup, but the one and only Mr. Aaron Schneider that's on this podcast is coming. And that's a that's a big take for us. I think Aaron's going to talk gear. It's kind of up to him. We're going to give him uh, the dealer's deck on what he wants to talk about. So we're going to fill that in. So we have our Sheep Hunter University, and we got a lineup. We got a dozen people that are blowing your mind: Adam Foss, um, Joe Appel, uh, of course, Aaron Snyder, who we've already mentioned. Uh, Julie's going to do a talk for us. Julie McQueen. Um, we've got uh, Wardo, Matt Ward. Uh, we've got um, who else is in the lineup? It is long and distinguished. So some of these, I'm a little bit careful here because some of them are attentive and not confirmed. So I'm going to be a little bit cautious in what I say here. But needless to say, oh, Mr. David Martinez, you want to learn on, on how to photograph? Bring in the best in the business. And, you know, we have an incredible lineup of people in British Columbia. Some of you seen and heard from before. David's coming up. He's going to do uh, a seminar on outdoor photography. And this guy knows photography. So unbelievable registration is going to open up in about three weeks time it'll be open uh, by the end of the month and we're so stoked we got so much going on and our directors are all working their tails off behind the scenes to put together a show like you have never seen before i'm excited for this i can't wait we're going big or going home guys it's gonna be great yeah awesome so this mountain hunting expo is really focused on the mountain hunting experience uh, we got a bunch of vendors confirmed that are going to blow your socks off. And um, we just really can't wait to to bring this lineup to uh, to Penticton. So Sleuth Conservation Mountain Hunting Expo, that's coming soon. And uh, just a really quick touch base. Uh, we have our Women's Shaping Conservation event on November 25th in Richmond, BC. Love to have you out there. We're going to be, you and I are going to be in the house. Uh, we're going to do a swap cast with uh, 
Sheep Fever, Gray Thornton, and uh, Talk is Sheep. And we're going to be having our Women's Shaping Conservation Chair, Rebecca, and Women Hunt, their chair, uh, Renee, on the podcast. Uh, we're going to watch the new film, Beyond Bonds. We're going to give do a ton of giveaways like we always do. Tickets are on sale on our website. The lineup is extensive. Rachel Attila is going to be there. She's our keynote. Blaine Culkins, who's the conservative um, hunting and angling caucus chair, is going to be there. Uh, it's going to be an epic night. So two great events coming up, and there'll be more on that coming down the road. Anything else we need to touch on, buddy? No, I think we're good. You nailed it. And we'll roll right into this one with uh, the one and only Mr. Aaron Schneider. This episode is sponsored by our conservation partner, Precision Optics. Thank you, Sitka Gear and Precision Optics, for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems. Good afternoon, Aaron, and welcome to Talk of Sheep. It's awesome to finally connect with you. No, it's, it's great to be on. Thank you so much. Yeah, right on. So I know that you... Uh, we never plan these things in the fall because a guy like Aaron Snyder is not going to be available in October, but I think we got pretty lucky. We kind of got you in between things and, uh, uh, what do you got on the go? Where are you off to in the next few days here? Uh, I leave tomorrow for, uh, for South Dakota mule deer. Um, I'm going to hunt for a couple days and then I'm going to, um, I've got some, uh, buddies from the military coming and I'm going to kind of help guide them for the few days after that. So. Awesome. So, Anything in the particular you're looking for? Are you looking for a 200-inch class buck, or what are you after? Are you just looking for some meat? What's the plan? I know it's going to be uh, big, but... Yeah, I mean, uh, it's my my buddy, Ryan Rotier. He owns the area or whatever, and, and two years ago, we shot a really big one. Last year, we kind of had a... We thought we shot the right one, <laughs> one and it wasn't. So anyway, I, you know, something in the 175, 185 range is kind of what we're looking for, so... Yeah, right on. So lots to talk about. I know that there's been a lot going on with you and a lot going on with Kifaru, but, um, you know, before we kind of get into that, um, I kind of like to, you grew up, I guess, in Oregon, hey, and, uh, you know, living in Colorado now, I guess, is the, is that where you're at? And so, so uh, from Oregon, the comp, I lived in Colorado for a long time. The company was in Colorado and then we moved to Wyoming about a year and a half ago. So I'm in, I'm in Wyoming right now, as well as the company. Okay, right on. So with regards to your youth and stuff, you always grew up in the backcountry and hunting, or do you kind of fall into that at a later later stage? No, I've always, um, I mean, my hometown in Oregon is 200 people. So, you know, I wasn't necessarily in the backcountry, but always fishing and, you know, it's an outdoor community. And then I, I actually worked on a trail crew team each summer um, in high school where we did all the wilderness trails and cleared those trails with crosscut saws and, you know, obviously axes and loppers, you know, getting the willow trees out of the way or whatever. Um, that kind of got my passion for backpack hunting going. Um, and, and, you know, at that time, I think uh, I'm getting old. Um, I think minimum wage was two ninety five an hour. Uh, right. So it was kind of slave labor in the sense of, you know, as a, as a, you know, 14 year old, uh, running a cross cut saw, you know, getting old growth trees out of a trail, but that's where it actually probably started from the most. And then I've always had a passion for the outdoors, but it was amazing to me, the animals I was seeing while we were cleaning those trails up and what I was seeing. And, you know, just, I mean, I just wrote an article about my time when I was just in, in BC, um, 
you know, being the most remote you possibly can has just always, you know, enamored me and been a passion for me. And so that's where it started though. So what was your first hunt then? Was it bird stuff or and was it a family thing or was it, you figured that out on your own, you hooked up with some guys in the back country. How did that work? No, I mean, my dad kind of hunted, you know, <laughs> I mean, I say that, you know, not to make fun of Oregonians, but, uh, you know, kind of the redneck clear cut, uh, probably some beer being, you know, drink type hunting. And then, uh, you know, my, my first actually backpack hunt was for, you know, bench leg mule deer, blacktail kind of a combo. And I, I was 14 at the time, I guess would have been, uh, two years after I got my hunter safety was probably my, my first backpack kind of backcountry, you know, hunt, had no idea what I was doing and couldn't really hit anything. And then, um, it's grown from there. So, so did that early backpacking days with probably uh, not the best backpack? Did that sort of inspire you to, because you became a you're the gear guy, like you you know, that's that's your your reputation. Where did what fostered that passion? Was it just the outdoors, or was it the gear itself, or how did that come about? It's kind of strange. Um, yeah, at that time, as you were probably close to the same age. <laughs> you know, there wasn't great gear back then, you know, there was a foam pad and a camp trails framed, you know, anyway, um, it didn't really at that time have, you know, I was raised extremely poor. And, uh, you know, when I say that, you know, I think my dad made 1600 bucks a month and there was four of us. And, and, uh, you know, as, as time went on, it was really after that, um, you know, when I was more in my young adult phase of buying gear and, and, and I also have a, a bad name, you know, for speaking maybe the truth or my version of the truth because of this, because <laughs> I had bought gear off requests or not requests. I, I had bought gear off recommendations of maybe TV shows or known personalities or whatever um, that was really bad. And it got to a point I got so pissed and I didn't have, I barely graduated high school. I just like I had a writing career, right? I just was like, you know, someone needs to like speak fairly intelligently about gear. And I started to do that good, bad, or indifferent, you know, made a lot of people happy, made a lot of people pissed. Um, and then now I try to still, still do the same thing. Uh, meaning, you know, try to speak fairly honestly about gear, try, you know what I mean? I, you know, try to get, whether it's my gear, someone else's gear, as long as it's good gear, you know, get the word out because, it is expensive to buy good gear and I hate when people buy the wrong gear or, 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 or bad gear, subpar gear and waste their money on it. You know, I, I felt compelled uh, to speak maybe more honestly or, or my version of honest um, or more intelligently about some of the gear that was out there, some of the downfalls and shortcomings of it. And that's kind of where that got the ball rolling where now I help, design all kinds of gear from broadheads to boots to, you know, tents and obviously, you know, Kafaru backpacks or whatever. Um, you know, whether my version is correct or not, I, at least I know that I feel comfortable when I say, Hey, you know, Kyle, you should get this. It's good. That at least I feel a warm and fuzzy about it. So you talk about all this different stuff that you designed. So, you know, the Kafaru brand is expanded significantly and you know you look in the early days and it wasn't quite as broad now i know patrick was an innovator on every level on so many different things and it's i find it fascinating but you're you yourself uh, when you talk about broadheads and all these other things do you work as a consultant or how does that work are you trying to bring it under the kafaru fold i know you've got different you know born primitive now is a 
you know, a brand that's doing really well on itself. Is it under the Kefaru umbrella or is that uh, beyond it? And as in a consultant, what is that? How does that work? Yeah, I guess you could say more of a consultant and I don't want to make myself sound, you know, cooler than I, than I am. Um, but when, when, um, whether it be like, like an example of uh, the cutthroat three blade broadhead with Rocky mountain specialty gear, that's a broadhead, Danny Klum, one of the owners of Rocky mountain specialty gear. And I came up with, um, you know, that was just, he and I wanting to come out with a better broadhead. Um, in the case of like, uh, Oh, the Hanvog Makra boot. Um, they, they have three versions of it. There was issues with one of the versions and I just gave my advice, helped out in testing and they have a new version. You know, some of the things I get paid for, some I don't, some I just want better gear. And so if you have like a component system, I've helped with those. I think like iron will has something called the Snyder core. Um, uh, which is a system that Bill with Iron Will and I came up with as far as the component system. Um, there's some things I'm under an NDA, not like it's super secret, but I've sold some designs that I just can't talk about because they want to pretend like they actually came up with it, which is part of business. Um, but, you know, some of the things are just I tested it and gave my approval. I work with Hilleberg on testing some of the different shelters. So some of it, I don't design anything at all. I just go beat it up and say, hey, I would you know, change this or that other things. I am actually involved in some of the, the d design and testing. Some of that's bows. Like I got in a little bit of trouble. The recent mountain goat hunt I was on, I was using a bow for 2024 and posted photos too early of that bow. Um, you know, so it's a little bit of everything. And, and, and some of it, I have little to do with other than testing other things like, uh, you know, some of my, so when I say some of my, some of the designs I've come up with, you know, those are things like, Hey, I need this. I think the people need this, the, you know, consumers need this. And that would be more like the Snyder core broadhead system or the cutthroat three blade broadhead. I don't know if that actually answered your question, but <laughs> yeah, it did. And the innovation piece is really fascinating to me. And I look at, you know, the, the stuff that Patrick did in the, in the early days and, and, you know, his, his background is incredible on the different things that, you know, of course, backpacks was a big part of it, but it was, you know, the, tent systems and uh you know even rifle scopes and and stuff that he was involved in with you specifically is that something that you was innate in you like did you have the innovative you know nature in you or is that something you learned from patrick when you came on board man i know i am i am not patrick smith and as much as i respect the guy we're, we're different in some ways the one one of the number one reasons patrick really liked me was i was spending 150 plus nights in the field while working a, 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 you know, a full-time job for the most part. And, and when I wasn't working full-time, meaning I wasn't getting paid so I could spend time in the field. And he, he liked that, but I am much diff. I am more, I am different than him. Patrick was never worried about marketing. He was horrible at it. He wasn't even that good at business, but he was far beyond his time when it came to design. Right. And, and he was almost an artist. I mean, and pioneered many things, it was actually funny. I, I don't want to mention companies' names, but I had to sign an NDA to go to a specific company to look at their, you know, their 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 dark room of of designs. Two of the designs, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, "You copied our shit." And they're like, "What?" And I'm like, "Patrick came up with that in the '90s." I'm like, "You just made me sign an NDA for something you're copying from me." And they're like, "What?" And I'm like, "Let me pull up the old website." You know, so he was way ahead of his time. And when I say way ahead of his time, some of it was too far ahead. Like some of it just didn't make sense. And so he and I, 
he definitely mentored me and guided me and helped me on things that I was deficient in or, or, or just not, not um, maybe I didn't have the, the mental capacity for a broader spectrum of, of, um, of thought process. And I honestly helped him on some ways in marketing. And uh, I don't know when you say the general vibe or flow of the company, he never worried about that. And I'm like, Patrick, if it doesn't look good and you don't feel tough or make people feel badass doing it, it's not going to sell as well. And so it was a good mesh between both of us. And he really helped me out with a lot of, when I say the design side of things, one of the things he was really good at is if you had a good idea. And when I say that off of like field experience was bringing that to fruition, right? Like, like running it, you know, to ground and, and getting to the bottom of it. And he was very good at that. Hmm. Now I heard somewhere along the way, I don't know if it's uh rumor and innuendo or there's some truth to it but i was somebody told me that in the early days you just came and basically were working for free for him you're just you just want to get involved is that true yeah that's true yeah no when i came from the ground up i came from no money like i didn't start getting paid with him um i was reviewing backpacks i came in i loved the suspension he had i didn't like the bags and i had designed the timberline bag and helped test and design a ku bag um yeah, no, I didn't get paid for free. I, I did for free. And I, I mean, I installed buckles on packs. I have done everything at the company. But the, the thing was at that time, not to bring up age demographics and millennials or whatever, but <laughs> I was just happy to be in it, right? I was happy to talk to, you know, in my, in my opinion, a legend in the industry. I was happy to be a part of something that I, that I honestly, in my life or my upbringing never thought I would be a part of. And so I didn't care that I worked for free. I, I got to use cool gear. I was hanging out with a legend. He was teaching me. And so I didn't get paid anything for a year, um, hmm. you know, in the beginning. So. Well, I think I read somewhere that one of the first bags you tested was the KU bag or something like that. And you were super impressed with the suspension. But one thing that I was a little shocked that it was like a sub three pound bag. And like, when I look at Kefaro gear and I, I run your guys's gear, I don't, I don't think ultra lightweight, right? Like if, if I'm thinking ultra lightweight in the industry, I don't immediately go to you guys. Uh, not that I think you're heavy, but uh, well, how, what's the ethos on that with, and your philosophy on it? We've got time. So this is funny. Cause I had to get a full on dissertation to my company of the history of mystery ranch, Kafaru, stone glacier, Kuyu, the whole nine. So back and if like, I, I'm familiar with you. So like, you know, rewind to 2010, um, 11, it was just mystery ranch and Kafaru and mystery ranch was technically heavy and Kafaru was technically lightweight. Right. And when I say lightweight, we were five to seven pounds and mystery ranch was 10 to 14. Um, you know, they, and I ran mystery ranch. I have a lot of respect for Dana. He's a, uh, unbelievable. He's a gangster. Right. Um, well then do you mind me going over this? I think people. No, this be, is awesome. This, yeah, um, this is so critical. Mm, Mark Seacat worked for Mystery Ranch at the time, and I had started to work with Kafar. Well, at that time, there was guys like, oh, Tom Foss, uh, uh, big sheep hunter, great guy, Adam Foss. They were all on the Mystery Ranch crew, and Kafar was lightweight. Like, you know, you. What's the extra four pounds? It's more comfortable. Well, then magically, Mark Seacat, great, great marketing guy, you know, whatever, moved to Mystery Ranch from to, to Stone Glacier because Kurt Roscoe designed the crux frame. 
And overnight, Kafaru was too heavy, like, <laughs> like literally that fast. And I was like, wait a minute. And so it's kind of like, like axle to axle bow length, right? Like my version of a short bow is a 35 inch bow. Cause I'm old, right. Or older. Yeah. And so all of a sudden now a five to seven pack, a seven pound pack, that's like sleeping with your sister. It's heavy. Like who would run that? Where I'm like, well, wait, hold on. We were too, we were too lightweight not long ago. So with the technology and Kurt Roscoe's an awesome dude, right? With that technology of that he had come out with and things he had changed at that same time, Patrick was kind of ahead of the game before Stone Glacier, he came out with a two pound, 12 ounce, 6,500 cubic inch pack that, that I hauled a, an entire mountain goat in, but it was almost, it was actually too light. It was fragile, right? You got to pay the tollman. So that KU pack, while it was light as air, um, it wasn't overly durable, obviously. It was made out of basically parachute material. So um, I don't want to say I learned my lesson. Obviously, the warranty on that, because it was so fragile, was fairly high. Because people were, you know, throw it in the back of four-wheelers and whatever else. And so we we stopped the KU line after a couple years just because pe- you got to be you have to have some, I don't want to say common sense, but you have to have some forethought in using a two pound, 12 ounce, 6,500 cubic inch back. At the same time this is going on, I'm skipping a lot of stuff. Cat and his crew went with Stone Glacier. You know, obviously I stayed with Kafaru and they had, I don't know what their first pack was, but I think it was around four pounds with the crux frame um, in, a, in a good system. Um, but it was a straight frame like Mystery Ranch. There was no curvature to it where Patrick was always so just hyper-focused on the finite details of comfort, right? The infinite load lifter adjustment, the curvature of the stays, things like that. Well, one of the reasons with the company being how it is now, one growth, right? We couldn't, we kind of maxed out the building we were in. Now we are in a new building, but as far as like diving into the ultra light, ultra lightweight community again, I wanted to wait on that, which we're doing soon because that five to seven pound range was like a happy medium. Now, like you said a little bit ago, considered heavy now, but a five to seven pound pack 10, 15 years ago was actually pretty lightweight. But now with um, Exo's pretty light, Stone Glacier's light, uh, Kuyu makes some lightweight stuff. Um, I didn't want to... And I'm not down, I'm not talking down on any other. I didn't want to sacrifice durability and comfort for weight. And to our, that's a negative in some ways, because some people don't care about it. Like, you know, I, we see guys all the time, they pick one up, pick the other up, and they're like, they don't care about comfort. They're like, this thing's three pounds. I want to use that. And so we've spent the last three years, which is, I probably shouldn't talk about this, about things coming in 2024 to what I feel is not sacrificing durability or comfort or anything else. It just as comfortable with the offer now with a substantial loss in weight, but it took technology to catch up to what Patrick and I started. And I'm kind of finalizing with what we're going to be coming out with. So that's a long winded answer. (laughs) Yeah. That was kind of my next question was, you know, how much is technology? There's innovation. That's fine in terms of design but then just the materials alone right so that that seems to me a space that's tr- turning so quickly it's evolving and, and it's there's a finite limit on it because you can only get so much lighter you can't 
pretty soon they weigh nothing. You can't weigh nothing, right? So it's pretty amazing that they're so how big a deal is it that the technology's uh, improving on the material side of things? Um, in the case of what I wanted to do, it's very, very big. I mean, we've worked on uh, what I'm talking about again for, well, far before, you know, I say the last three to five years, but Patrick and I were messing and I were messing around with this a decade ago and some of its material, not the frame, but the bag. And, um, you know, there's different Cuban fiber. I mean, there's a ton of different materials. Um, but again, you, you always pay a tollman and that tollman is generally durability, you know, and, and in construction, there was a saying you, you can have quality, quantity, or cost efficiency, and you can have any two of those you want. Hmm. It's not that much different backpack hunting, right? You, you can have extreme lightweight, but you're not going to have durability. All right. Um, you can have durability. And, and fairly decent cost, but you, you know, you're, you're going to lose, you know, obviously it's going to be heavier, right? You know, so you've got these, all these different dynamics. Well, to, to, with technology catching up, you're able to actually have kind of the best of all three worlds to a certain degree. And there is a point that I believe you're too lightweight to, for backpack hunting, especially for outfitters and guides and things like that. Um, you know, and that's a matter of opinion for some, you know, some people don't mind burning through a bag every six months or whatever, but technology has been huge with, with all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I got some more on innovation and R and D, but before we go there for you, what's the, you're doing a 10 to 14 day hunt. What size of pack are you going to run? What cubes are you looking at personally? If I'm not guiding, I can get away with 68 to 7,200 cubic inches. Um, okay. For a 12 day hunt guiding 10,000. I mean, I don't know, man. Like I, I literally, I was, I was just on my goat hunt, um, with a, a buddy in BC and I had a prototype pack, one of the ones we're talking about and it was big, but man, it was not big enough. And I mean, I say big, it was 6,800 cubic inches, but between the gear and the Cape and the meat and everything else, it just wasn't big enough. So, you know, for me, 68 to 72 solo, but you know, when you're guiding, 78 plus like you know you just need more more size yeah yeah absolutely so now on the innovation side of things you know this is super intriguing to me obviously you're a big part of it uh you've you've got the forefather of the company that sort of set that tone for you how much r&d and innovation goes into it uh, besides you like you take you out of the equation does the innovation department disappear from kifaru or is there a lot of people behind the scenes that are coming up with concepts and ideas no, there's a lot of people behind the scenes and, and we're trying to change that because I don't want to be I'm trying to retire when I say that I don't like social media. Right. I don't I don't I don't really like the limelight. Um, we we have four. Yeah, four. I count on my hands and toes here, 14 well-known and trusted people that we use for testing and R&D. Now, when I say that, just because of the amount of stuff I get to hunt and, and, and guide and whatever else, obviously I'm a big part of that in the sense of like, if you take me away, we have those guys, but I just flat out get to pack more animals out. What we try to take away from when we, when we come to the round table is I'll have all my thoughts, all my findings hidden. So when we go to those 14, there's no, there's a saying for it, but there's nothing I say that is going to be mirrored. They might change their opinion off of what I say. So we'll take my notes and kind of hide them and we'll get those primary 14, but others 
all of their views and see, are they, are they a mirror image of mine? Is there some differences, things like that? What are the differences? Why are the differences there? Is it because of where they live? Is it because of how they hunt? You know, things like that. Cause you compare hunting and uh, helicopter hunting in the NWT. You don't really need too rugged of gear for that compared to a guy in BC that's backpacking or horse packing in uh, and compared to someone in Colorado, you know, that's backpacking in Colorado, you don't have a lot of problems with like underbrush and rain. You just have altitude. So their views may be more geared to lightweight. Then you go to a place with underbrush, Alaska, BC or whatever. Then you're like, okay, well, their gear is probably going to be a little heavier because it just sucks because of underbrush and tag alder and whatever else. And so we get all of that combined and then bounce that off of what I have. And then we start to kind of keep it between the mayo and the mustard of, okay, where are we going to go from here? Is the original design going to change? Should it change? Why is it going to change? Things like that. That's probably confusing, but I hopefully explained that well enough. Yeah, no, it's a really good explanation. So when I look at your lineup, uh, I'd say Kefaro, and I, I I love your packs, and I'm running the doll currently. Love love the waterproofness of it. Um, with regards to that, is it important to you as an organization or a company to have the diversity in packs? Like we look at some across the aisle, you look at some of the, the other pack manufacturers, three, four, maybe five different packs. With uh, Kefaro, there's a, a, a litany of them, and they're all functional and have different. You guys, is that important? And and how do you maintain that uh, that I guess that portfolio? Because it's pretty impressive. Um, it's important. We are going to slim it down some, and that's just when I say slim it down some. There's going to be, there's always going to be a, be a need for a, I call them a weight weenie, an ounce counting, ultralight crowd. So we're always going to have that crowd. And then you're going to have the intermediate crowd, which is more kind of my crowd, right? And so let's say our current lineup, you have the hoodlum is kind of an intermediate, you know, moderate weight, not lightweight, not super heavy. The doll is kind of going from moderate to more lighter weight. What we're trying to do now, what we're going to do is we're going to have a definitive line of here is ultralight, right? And then we have the intermediate and then we have more like, let's say a fulcrum, it's got 7,000 straps and it's made for like portaging and moose head, whatever. We're trying to slim it down, but still have three tiers. Um, when I say three tiers, it's always con not confusing. It's always it, I, what it is, is a pain in the ass. When, you, when you're getting ready to come <laughs> out with something, you're going to have, you know, it's like the New York Taxi Cab Drivers Association as far as giving advice you go to a guy that hunts the Wasatch front or something, he's going to have all these different ideas and in his mind or her mind, the best ideas. And it's like, well, dude, go, you know, go hunt moose in the Yukon or whatever. Your, your views will change. So we try to hit all three, but we are going to slim it down a little bit and make it less confusing. Right. But, but there's always going to be those three lines. Cause I just, to, to me, it just goes against, the grain to not offer something for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I love the diversity of it and I love the uh, functionality of it. You know, you can buy all the different sizes of pouches and everything. It's just super highly adaptable and it's an addiction, man. You start buying the shit and you can't stop. It's like, fuck, I got to buy, <laughs> buy some more of this stuff. And, uh, but it's one of the cool things I love about it. It's so highly um, functional. Well, and it, it It's funny. You, you use the doll, right? 
Yeah. Exactly. Uh, okay. So I was just in, in Northern BC and uh, I, I, I had went on my own hunt. I helped out on a bunch of hunts in the lower 48, the Nalgene bottle pockets are very much a, a pro. Well, up there, they're like, they cut me needles and leaves get in there, you know, whatever else. And it's like, okay, well, again, the, um, the three tiers, right. You're never going to make everyone happy, but, but we're trying to narrow it down to make it simpler uh, for everyone and make everyone happy. And so like, it's like, well, in, in one view of it is, well, you can always just empty them out. Like it's not like seven pounds of leaves, right. It's like, you know, a couple ounces, but when, when you try to, well, I mean, you can appreciate this. If you went to an outfitter in British Columbia, an outfitter in Arizona, right. And an outfitter in let's say Wyoming, all of them are the smartest guys in the world and know exactly what everybody wants but they don't, they just know what they want in their demographic and their, in their area. So again, that's where that three tiers comes from is trying to make all three of them happy. Yeah. Right on. So, you know, the packs goes without saying, but you guys are not a one trick pony and you've done a great job on shelters, stoves. Um, and so now talk a little bit about how, um, the born primitive outdoors evolved and, and sort of, is it acquisition? Is it uh, company acquisition or is it in-house stuff? No, no, actually it's, it's totally separate. So how that happened, I do, without getting myself in trouble here, um, I, I do <laughs> training um, with different portions of the military, um, uh, survival and uh, escape and evasion and <laughs> easy. Sorry. I got two giant dogs. I guess you got five, but um <laughs> Sorry about that, man. Um, no, it's all good. So I do uh, military training uh, with with different um, whatever in d- different tier one groups. Uh, during some of that training, I met some individuals that were friends with uh, a bear handling owner of Born Primitive, the CrossFit clothing line. Uh, bear was a, a Navy SEAL, and they 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 knew he had wanted to start an outdoor clothing line and introduced us he and i got along really well and uh we we, kafara was also looking at the same time of starting a clothing line um and and honestly with the growth we've had um it was something that probably (laughs) would have been like you know mentally a killer for me anyway so i partnered up with born primitive with bear handlin to start the outdoor clothing line and and it's kind of hand in hand with kafaru but it is completely separate. Now we sell born primitive on the Kafaru, you know, website and things like that, but that is actually straight through born primitive um, and bear handling. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a partner in that, but that was a lot of things, you know, a tactical line with born primitive an outdoor line, a campfire line. Yes. CrossFit. So it's not actually through Kafaru. We just kind of are partnered, but it's, it's through bear handling and, and born primitive, um, and, and, and Bear started because he's a CrossFit freak. He's like a freak of nature physically. Um, and he had started a CrossFit clothing line a long time ago. And he, again, wanted to start an outdoor line. We He hooked me up with his designer. And then we designed all the stuff for BP Outdoors. Right on. Very cool. So now when you guys look at you know, next steps in the organization and obviously not looking any for any trade secrets here. And I know there's only so much you can talk about and we'll get into the outfitter side of things in a minute, but before we go there on a product perspective, 
do you see the Kafaro line expanding or, or do you guys stick in the lane that you guys are really thriving in? No, we're definitely expanding. I mean, you have to figure we, when I first started, I can't go over exact numbers, but, but we've gained from when we started by, by millions. Right. And so some of the lack of expansion was just straight bandwidth and size of the building. Obviously the new building's like 60,000 square feet in Wyoming. Um, some of that also is there is a fine line. Obviously, we're made in America, 100% everything. And as I understand it, for the most part, anyway, we are the, the last ones. Everything we make, well, except our hats and T-shirts, those aren't made in America. But um, needle, thread, buttons, labor, everything is in the U.S. There are certain things you cannot make in the United States. And when I when, when I say that, we just are not good at it as is, 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 as Americans, we're not teaching home ec anymore um, and uh, sewing and you know things like that. So finding sewers that are able to sew certain things is difficult. And then the material, right? So when you get into um, different shelters and, and things like that, um, it is very difficult to sew those in the U.S. So one of the things we're really working hard on now, and I say working hard on, there's designs I have for different shelters that we may have to go overseas, whether that's Europe um, or Asia or whatever, because it can't be done here. And, and, and we'll probably get a little bit of a black eye over that. And I understand that. But the thing is, is it wasn't that we, we could do it and chose not to, you just can't do it in the U S and that may be that we sew it here, but it's not with American made uh, materials. And that's just because we don't offer them. So when you look at expansion, we're definitely expanding on the American made side, but some of the things we're expanding on are things that we just cannot make in the U S. Hmm. Did I read somewhere that you guys actually have employee housing and stuff like that too? Is that part of your business plan? Correct. Yep. Wow. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. You know what that is? A pain in the ass is what that is. Um, <laughs> we, we, uh, and I say that I, I love that we can, help out um employees and things like that um you know in, in the community that we're in now um uh, my business partner is is one of the greatest humans his name's chad shumway he's one of the greatest humans around you know he looked at it you know one from a business perspective but two you know he's building my wife's a realtor um he, he's building um housing now for potential or future employees at Kafaru as we expand. So again, a great human, um, you know, he's going to make some money off it, obviously, but you know, his primary, you know, hope and, and goal was to have housing for current and future employees as we expand. So when you talk about expanding your product lines, and we talked about staying in your lane, what areas, and again, not looking for trade secrets, but what areas do you see that could, you know, in your mind, need some more support in the industry? Where, where's some niche markets that could be filled? And uh, if you can't go into the details, that's fine. I totally get it. But uh, no, I can. Too. And it'll, it'll be a little bit broader than that. So one thing we've actually kind of even though Patrick pioneered the uh, ultralight shelters and, uh, you know, backpackable stoves, we've kind of fallen behind on that. So catching back up with that is one of them. Uh, you know, the other one's going to be dual wall, four season, three season, ultra lightweight shelters, um, bivy sacks, things of that nature. Um, you know, the tactical line with some of the different friends that I have and things like that, that's going to be another portion that we are releasing some of that in 2024. But, um, 
the, the tactical line, when I say that, that kind of crosses over. Some of it's going to be hunting and tactical, but but the tactical line and hunting line on the more rifle carrying uh, weapon systems, um, that's going to be expanded on. Some of the other things are going to be simple stuff, dry sacks, um, but um, very, when I say dry sacks, you can get a dry sack anywhere, but applied use dry sacks, applied use waterproof backpacks, things like that. Um, and, and this goes, you know, with, with us, we have the backpacking community, uh, the everyday carry community, these travel bags, the hunting community, the prepper community, uh, the doomsdayers, the guys burying the shit in their backyard, um, you know, and then, you know, the backpacking and then tactical. So, that's a lot of expansion and growth and things we're working on. And uh, the biggest thing that I've learned and I've tried to learn from people I've worked with is you can grow too much and it is hard to keep the train on the tracks at times. And so we have dialed back purposely on a lot of that to just make sure that we can keep up um, and, 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 and do it correctly. Um, Cause too much growth sometimes can end a company. So we've been working on, you know, kind of, not going too fast on some of that stuff. So when we talk about that sort of thing, and COVID was a, a freaking mess um, with everything that went down, and how much did that play a role in sort of, uh, you know, getting your product you wanted to to consumers, um, or how you know was some of that growth oriented too, like just trying to get everything in place for that? Or man, you know, being American made, it didn't really change much. Um, Is that right? It was actually. Man, I say comical, but if you read between the lines, um, you learned real quick where some companies, whether that was archery or backpacking or whatever, where they said they were made in the USA, if they were having problems with um, uh, materials and products, they probably weren't made in the USA. So on our case, the number one thing was foam. Um there was issues with getting foam. Um, you know, in our case, we just upgraded the foam. We went with a higher quality foam and that was something we could get easier than the foam we are currently using, which is better for the consumer, but it didn't really affect. Well, I tell you where it affected us was we learned who's lazy and who doesn't want to work, um, real quick. Uh, because you know, it was hard to find employees cause it was like, they were paying you to stay home. Um, you know, we learned who wanted to work, who didn't, who was there for the company. But, you know, as far as actually getting materials and things like that, it, it didn't affect us that much. But again, we we are actually made in the USA. So we were getting everything from the US. There wasn't a container floating around waiting to dock. You know, we, we already had it. So, hmm. yeah, phenomenal. Um, So the latest and greatest is freaking Kafaru Outfitters. That's pretty awesome, dude. Let's yeah. let's hear the the skinny on the whole thing. Let's the whole evolution. I want to hear about it. Yeah, yeah, it's fairly simple. My business partner and I'm not that involved in the outfitter portion of it. When I say that, like we we my my business partner had asked me about buying it's Okanagan Outfitters. Um, yeah, you know the amount of tags, the price, you know th- you know things like that. Uh, the person that we were going to partner with um, and what I thought about it, and I was like, hey man, I mean you know, I, it makes sense financially. I know the numbers in some of those areas, they seem to be pretty good. And so this is the simplified answer to that question. So he purchased Okanagan Outfitters, um, and he's purchasing other areas as well. Um, 
you know, it's not, there's not that, you know, we'll do, um, we have, you know, bighorns, callies, uh, mountain goats, mountain lion, lynx, bobcat, mule deer, elk, black bear, moose, probably forgetting something in there. And so my, my business partner looked at it from two things. Um, one is obviously a business portion of this. And then the other portion is obviously, um, you know, promotion or whatever else you want to look at it. Will it help Kafaru, the backpack company? And so, I'm, I'm simplifying this, but he bought the area, bought all the tags and everything else. And it's gone really well so far. And again, he's looking at buying, I think he already has some other areas, not in BC, but other parts of the United States as well. So, so with that, you were up guiding this year, weren't you in, in uh, the Okanagan? No, no, I, I was okay. not. And I wasn't actually technically guiding. So I was actually just a really helpful hand. Um, Next year will be different. I'm getting my my long-term, not residency, but work visa. But that's actually through North River Outfitters um, uh, that I'll be helping out there, um, not not Okanagan. Um, and that's in Northern BC with, with North River, Ron and Maria Nemechek. Um, mm-hmm. That's who I was with up there. So, Okay. So when you killed your goat, you were that's where you were hunting? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, right on. So let's t- talk a little bit about that. That's a freaking huge billy you killed. Yeah, no, it was cool. Um, you know, that kind of started with um, uh, uh, Bart Lancaster uh, had asked me to help out. Um, he and I and Clay, the whole Lancaster family and I are friends. Um, he had asked me if I wanted to help out, you know, on a hunt when I had booked my goat hunt, if I wanted to hunt, help out on a different one. And then... Um, not self make myself sound better than I am. Ron and Maria learned that I've, I'm capable of mountain hunting in that environment and, and, and asked like, Hey, do you want to hang out and stay and help? And I was like, well, I don't have a guide license up there. And they're like, no, no, we have plenty of licensed, you know, guides and everything else. Like, you know, it doesn't seem like you have to go back to work. And I'm like, no, no, I, I don't. And I love it up here. So if I can stay, I'll, I'll definitely, stay so i helped out on you know different sheep hunts and goat hunts and things like that so awesome so but tell me about your well goat enough, they, they, they did get me we're getting me my 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 work visa and, and guide license so i will be guiding for them next year so that's awesome so how many trips do you, you think you're going to be there the whole fall and do the whole thing or yeah yeah i'll definitely i would imagine i'll do two or three um, you know, sheep hunts and probably six or seven mountain goat hunts, a couple moose hunts, caribou. Um, you know, for me, um, that area, especially on the mountain goat side of things, it, it's one of the more remote areas I've been. And it's just built for my, the way that I am built mentally and what I like to do. You know, I like the idea of being dropped off on a lake or a creek somewhere and hacking it out on my own for 10 to 12 days and, 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 and that kind of thing. So it was definitely like, you know, li- realistically, and I, I told my wife this, if I died in a plane crash with Ron or got eaten by a grizzly, I would, I would die happy. Like I love that place and, and what I do up there and they're great people. So. Very cool. So now from a business perspective, when you take your gear up there and you're demoing the new pack this year or, or testing it, not demoing it, are you, uh, is that something that maybe you'll bring up half a dozen you'll give them to all the guides you guys will take them use them every day and talk about the downfalls the pros yeah that's kind of an added bonus of of doing that so this year when i came up i had given uh maguela uh that's ron and maria's daughter and uh uh, gaetano 
some of the newer stuff, I was using it because, you know, the, that's the best way to test it, pack out, you know, eight or nine goats and a couple moose or whatever. And then you get feedback from different perspectives of what people like or dislike, because everybody's got their own, you know, views or, or, or whatever. So, you know, that's a big part of it because you can get stuck in your own little world about what's right and wrong and what makes sense. And when I say right and wrong, what, what gear is going to work or what, what design, what pockets. And so it's always good to be on the ground doing it and getting feedback from people doing it as well. So that's awesome. Um, how did the pack work? Are you happy with it? Is it oh yeah, it was good. I, the only negative side is when I went from, from hunting to, to, I say guiding again, I wasn't guiding, but helping it wasn't big enough. Right. So that was a, the first thing was like, okay, we need, we need a bigger version of this, which we knew. Right. But with the, the full system that, when are you going to post this podcast? Um, possibly next week, actually, I think next Wednesday. Okay. Without going into too much detail then, um, the full I can system. delay it though, if you want. No, yeah. no, you're, you're good with the full system I was using. I was, very pleasantly surprised um and happy and when i say that we knew it was good we we'd been using the system and, and everything else but um until you have 125 pounds going down you know shale cliffs and everything you know there's always things whether it's durability or comfort or whatever um it was uh i when i left doing all of that i was very happy and excited that okay we had made the right decision we didn't uh uh, the, the materials and the fabrics and things like that, whether we chose were the right ones. So yeah, it was, it was good. And, and again, next year will be the same thing. I mean, there's nothing better handing six or eight packs out to different guides and outfitters and you doing it yourself. You know, that's the best testing you can get. I mean, a lot of companies and I'm not mentioning any names or, or, or whatever, but they don't test as thorough as I feel they probably should. And so that gives us, a lot of testing up to that and then a full season of testing before we even think of coming out with it. So. Yeah. Right on with regards to, you know, you guys do such a good, you personally, but Kafaru in general does such a great job on the university side and education and uh, your videos and, and that component. Did you do any of the stuff of that in the field on this one, or is it all in-house that you do it within a controlled environment? As far as which part? Well, like videos talking about the new gear or any of that stuff when no, obviously you haven't released anything yet, but uh. no, we, we did a decent amount while I was in the, the, the field and, and honestly, some of the failures that we changed, like, you know, there's a couple of things that we filmed that I was like, well, this is, this didn't pan out, you know, we're changing this and this is why, you know, it's cause it's always good in, in my opinion, way you're, you're not going to always you know, knock and not everything's gold, right? You're not going to knock everything out of the park. And so talking about, well, this is why we did this. This is why it didn't work. And this is what we're changing to, um, you know, the foam that we had in the first shoulder straps seemed with fishing trips in Wyoming, you know, some minor stuff, like it, it was a good idea. And then in the first two weeks of being up there, um, we, we swapped it out to a, upgraded foam and, and, and it made sense. And, and now we know like, okay, somebody else doing that is going to, um, you know, not have any issues. Cause I had just done it with, with other guides and outfitters. So. Yeah. Right on. Uh, I have to say that my Kefaru packs like a bloody warm hug. I put it on. It just feels right. You know, it's like putting <laughs> on that sweater. It, it always feels good, uh, heavy or light, to be honest, it still hurts like hell when it's heavy, but, yeah. um, 
with North River Outfitters. So, you know, if you go up and are able to guide and that all comes together, which I'm sure it will, that's got to be something that they can mark up. Like, I, you know, if you if you go on a mountain goat hunt or you can go one with you, it's got to be worth more. Are they going to use that as a marketing opportunity? I, I can't see why they wouldn't because there's got to be people that would die to go hunting with you. Man, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I've become really good friends with Ron and Maria um, and, you know, talking about different pricing. The one thing they don't bring bow hunters okay. and it's like, hey, next year, that's going to change because I'm going to be bringing, you know, bow hunters up. But I don't know. I would not. Um, I mean, I wouldn't want people to pay more to come hunt with me, you know, I mean, whatever, if they want to tip me great, you know, but I mean, the, the biggest thing on my end, which is weird, like I'd work for free, like right. they were laughing. Cause when I was helping out, I'm, 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 I'm not the best by any stretch of, you know, judging, you know, sheep or goats or whatever, but I, you know, I've got a fairly good, you know, handle on it. So I was working for free the entire time. And when I say working, I just <laughs> wanted to go. And uh, it was hard for them to wrap their head around it first. And I'm like, look, if I go back, I'm just in an office doing shit I hate. So I'll just keep going out. And, you know, again, not, not being a guide or whatever else. Um, it was interesting for them because for me, I just loved being that remote and helping people and seeing the animals or whatever. So I, would, I wouldn't feel comfortable. I, I can't say let Ron and Marie can do what they want. I wouldn't feel comfortable with them charging more if somebody wanted to come hunt with me. Now, if that person wanted to tip me more, that's up to them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, those hunts are expensive enough already. And, you know, it's not, I, I mean, it's weird because like, I like mountain goats is a little different. I'm, I'm really good. Like I, I'll put myself up against anyone with mountain goats judging and things like that. I, I feel comfortable with that, but you know, other animals and things, there's tons of guys better, you know, it's not that difficult you know, you keep the person happy, you keep them fed, right? You know, you, you find them an animal, make sure they get back or whatever. It, it's, it's just, man, I just love being out there and being with cool people. So I'm, I'm long winded on this, but I don't, I wouldn't let him do that if I had anything to say about it. Awesome. So you guys, you were on a couple stone sheep hunts this fall up there too. I've seen there was a few as well. Eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. There was a couple nice rams that that one ram was uh cranker i don't know what what did he end up uh did you get a score on him at all the, the bigger one the i can't I, think of who you were hunting with on that one but one's um 170 something on one of them um and i was on a few sheep hunts um 164 was one and 172 was another um you know they've got decent sheep um up there um you know the the, the thing with me that was surprising was the the goats, honestly, the mountain goats up there, I was trying to wrap my head around, you know, I'm like, you, I told Ron, I was like, dude, you're fucking up. Like your goats are crazy. And, and in Ron's mind, he just didn't think they were. I'm like, dude, I killed a Boone and Crockett goat on my first day. Yeah. First off, right. And, and, and there was a, I didn't even shoot the biggest one. Um, arguably right i wanted to shoot the wide one the goat i shot was eight and three quarters wide that's not that's overly that's pretty wide for a goat uh the other one was a little bit longer but you know and then i was on other goat hunts we shot a 52 and three quarters a couple 52s um you know and i had passed up a couple goats that were probably bigger than you know the one the guy ended up shooting and i say i we whatever um you know then the, then the one the client ended up shooting and so i was like man, Ron, I, I, I don't think you realize what you, 
you have for mountain goat hunting here. And so I was like, man, I, I would really focus more on, on mountain goats than anything because they're just, I mean, the, the world record wasn't shot that far away from where, where they're at. And again, on some of those hunts, like, I mean, I, I don't want to say the world record could be shot out of there, but I, I would bet next year there will be some 53 to 55 inch goats pulled out of that area. Yeah. They keep threatening. Like, uh, I know Justin pretty well, um, who killed that, the new record. And I, I, I keep hearing get like, you know, look the Chadwick, right. Will it ever be broken? Maybe, maybe not, probably not, but that they're with the goats that people think that it's going to be broken. It's going to be broke soon. So it's interesting. Man, I, I get, whether it's a Chadwick Ram or that goat, when you fly over that whole entire area, right. And when I say area, I fly from Smithers up. Mm -hmm. A lot of that area is untouched. And I'm even a pipe hitting hardcore dude with food airdropped. <laughs> it is untouched. And I mean, there's places I can legitimately say, I think no man has touched before that I was at this year. And so you can't say it's impossible to break the Chadwick record. Yeah, Do I think fair. that I'll be the one with the guy? No, but I'm saying that there is shit 10 square miles of area that will never be seen by man other than from a plane. It's not impossible. The world, I, record, you. you know, or, or the Chadwick Ram. I mean, all it takes is the, 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 the willingness to try right to get there. So, okay. So you have one hunt and that's it. You can only ever hunt one species again. Um, what are you, what are you going to go kill? No, mountain, what's, mountain what's, goat, mountain goat by far. Well, I say mountain goat by far, mountain goat and then mule deer. I never got into the sheep thing right I, I mean i've been fortunate enough hanging out with the lancasters to be on doll hunts and and and, and, and desert hunts and big horns and i've done helped out buddies on bighorn hunts and you know just did some stones but man, i'm not taking away from sheep at all but one thing that comes along with the sheep bug is money it's expensive yeah. i mean and so i've always had like i've always been enamored by mountain goats um you know, so I would, I would say mountain goats is the first one. And then mule deer, uh, the second I've, I've, I've hunted and killed a ton of elk. Um, you know, but oddly enough, like mountain goat and mule deer being the, the, the two, right. White tails out of a tree stand, you know, later in life, I've started hunting them. You know, I don't get typewriter leg or anxiety or, or nervous on the ground, man, put me in a tree stand and have like footsteps <laughs> coming from behind me. So, you know, kind of weird, but, you know, just starting whitetail hunting late in life. But yeah, if I had to pick one, like, and my wife is super chill. She's cool. Like I told her, I was like, you know, if I, if I fell off a cliff on a mountain goat hunt and died, I would have died happy. Like I love hunting mountain goats and, and being in those type of areas. So yeah, definitely goats is my, my number one. Is that uh, goat you arrowed uh, last month? Is that your biggest goat to date, or did you kill something bigger? No, no, that's my biggest. Um, I don't know what it'll dry out at, but over fifty. Um, I think it was fifty-one and four eighths. Uh, what what it was uh, green. Um, it basically has no deductions, but it was actually it, funny because um, I don't know that I shot the biggest, but I shot the one I wanted. So, like, literally right after I shot it. Um, yeah. Uh, Bart was giving me crap. Cause I yelled over. I was like, was the other goat bigger? And he's like, of course it was. And, uh, I don't know that it was bigger or not, or it was definitely, I mean, it stood in front of me at 28 yards. It was definitely longer, 
but the goat I shot was 10 and five eighths on one side, 10 and a half on the other five and seven eighths bases. I mean, big goat, but the biggest goat I had shot up until that point was like 48 and change. Um, you know, and I, and I've helped out and guided and whatever, a bunch of different goats, but I, I it was when we spotted the goats, when I went on it, like there was two 50 plus inch goats to choose from. It didn't matter which one I shot. I was a winner either way, but that wide of a goat, um, I think it was eight, three quarters doesn't happen very often. And so I really wanted the wide goat and that's the one I ended up getting, whether it was bigger or not. I didn't, I didn't care. So yeah, it was yeah. cool. Beautiful goat for sure. Yeah. I've seen pictures of it. it's fantastic. So, and Daryl, yeah. awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. And that, it was 10 or 11, but we killed a, a 13, 14 year old goat, you know, this season with, with North river as well. Um, okay. and, and I think I, I think I saw a nanny that was 15 inches and probably like 16 years old when I was up there. It was looked like a unicorn or whatever, you know, it was crazy. So yeah. And, and again, like coming from the lower 48, there is so much pressure everywhere you hunt, right? Like you don't have, like when I say downtime, you see a big animal, there's probably six other people watching it where whether it's the NWT or the Yukon or BC or whatever, you don't have as much or any pressure. And it, it's new for a guy like me. Cause you're, you're backpacking in, you've got outfitters, you've got public land hunters or whatever, where up there you're like, well, well, we let's just let it sit. We'll shoot it in the morning. Yeah. You don't say that shit down here. Like you're on it. So it's a whole different world up there as well. I completely changes the perspective. I, I just had a doll sheep hunt. I was on, I got a draw in BC and we flew into an area and, and we knew there was no one there. There's only one place to go in and there was no tracks. And, uh, we just, you know, we, we ended up killing a sheep opening morning, but we literally had the place ourselves for endlessly. And it just completely changes the experience. Like it's, um, yeah, it's so, so and that's why I love about sheep hunting, goat hunting and, there's still some pressure. Don't get me wrong. I get it, but it's certainly not like, uh, some of the other species. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, with Ron and Maria, like they were laughing because I, they were like, Hey, will you keep guiding for us? And I'm like, yeah, till my legs fall off and don't work. And they couldn't being up there for so long. I'm like, you guys don't understand down here. It is a different world. And when I say down here in the lower 48, and I'm not saying like, you know, one's harder or better, you know, whatever, but there's more pressure down here. And I'm like, guys, like Ron, when you drop me off, I'm not going to see anyone ever. And I may be stepping foot on places. No man has stepped before. And I may see an animal that's never seen a human. I do that down here. That big animal has probably seen 1,754 humans, right? I'm like, it's just different. And so for me, I, I wish I would have been able to go up there earlier in my life because it, it, it is it is just it, it's just a pleasure for me to be there it's just amazing so. yeah 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 it's untouched piece of paradise for sure we're pretty fortunate so yeah um okay a couple things before um what's next on your list for hunts after mule deer you got anything else going on um yeah so i might go up to alberta uh for for mule deer um in the uh, medicine hat area um oh that's my hometown oh well i'll call you when i'm up there um, <laughs> <laughs> um i might after that go to to bc for elk and mule deer you know depending on schedule um i've got some other things that might 
pop up. I've got a buddy that lives near me that has a, that his dad has a mule deer tag here in Wyoming. That's an amazing tag. Um, and then uh, I'm going to hunt whitetail um, in Oklahoma, Texas, you know, area after that. Um, my buddy, Scotty Campbell, he's the guy that I do the out dad outfitting guiding stuff with. Um, and then, you know, that kind of goes through December and then January, February, and March, we're balls to the walls with our dad. Um, and when I say that we do mule deer as well, uh, I think we have 16 mule deer clients, but the our dad stuff is like consumes January, February, and March for me. Like we, we bring in, I think 18, um, ram hunters and probably 40 u hunters for that and so that wow. keeps really busy january february and march so how many of those will you guide personally Not too many um <laughs> oh man I, man we have a couple really good you know guides um ryan barnwell is a guy that, that he's come in and helped out a ton um but man i would say i'll probably do four or five you know ram hunters and man i don't know 30 you hunters probably. Um, and then there's guy, like if you called, we have other properties. If you're like, Hey, I want to go on a out ad hunt and I can fit it in. I'll, I'll haul ass to another property and come in. So I think last year I did five ran Ram hunters and probably 18 you hunters. Um, wow. uh, the year before was more than that, but my buddy Scotty, he's the one that kind of operates that whole thing. Um, you know, and I say that like, obviously, um, he's like a brother to me as well, but I, I, I show up and literally I'm like a soldier. I'm like, just whatever we got, you know, you know, send me out. But that area, like we do mostly bow hunts. Right. And so when a gun hunter comes in, it's kind of like a break, right. Cause right. we do so much high archery. And so the archery hunters take a little bit longer. Um, but yeah, anyway, January, February, March, I'm doing, I'm doing out dad. So awesome. And then you're, you're, you get a few weeks off and then are you do some spring bear too on top of that or man i've shot so many bears now i don't even yeah. go. like we were supposed to go to actually alberta i was supposed to go last year and the year before i sent uh, andres he kind of runs actually kafaru um you know instead but I, we were trying to figure it out man i think i've shot 24 black bears and so <laughs> wow. i like it's not like super high on my list honestly now i'm gonna get made fun of for saying this i hunt turkeys more than i do spring spring bear um and then i do a lot of fishing like we do high country fishing so we'll backpack in six eight ten miles and do a lot of high country fishing um and i also shoot tournaments and so like 3d archery tournaments or what else so that takes up some time as well so awesome man well it sounds like a pretty full lineup so how does that function in terms of secession planning for kafaru what does that look like for the company and do you see yourself increasing those guide days and days in the field um and you know but what does succession planning i guess look like for the organization in terms of your your involvement you're still a young guy you got a lot of years left ahead of you but uh, do you see yourself fading into the sunset or or going hard i'm fading into the sunset to a certain degree so anders um uh, Christian, he's, he, um, he, he pretty much runs the company. I mean, I think a lot of people think I run the company. I don't run the company. Anders does. So, um, as it's working out now and he's crushing it, the, you know, the more he's doing, um, you know, I'm going to do like seminars, um, you know, write articles, classes, things like that, shoot tournaments, meet and greets, you know, guide hunt myself. So I'm not going to, you know, be like totally out of the limelight, so to speak, but definitely as far as like the day-to-day -day operation of Kafaru, that'll be Anders and the crew. 
sorry, crazy dogs. That'll be Anders and the crew. And then, yeah, I'm just going to you know, guide, hunt, seminars, classes, things like that. Um, we do a lot of, when I say a lot of, we have done a few and we're going to expand a lot of like land nav courses, survival courses, things like that um, with my military buddies. And so that's something else Kafaro is expanding on. So I don't know if you've ever seen me do like glassing camps and land nav camps. So mm -hmm. in 2024, we're actually doing full on land navigation courses, um, you know, as far as actually using a compass and a map and plotting out points and things like that. So I'm not going to fade away, but I'm definitely going to fade into what I want, um, you know, as time goes on. That's awesome. Well, we got to get up you up here to BC and uh, get you doing uh, some stuff up here, Aaron. We we love your products. We love what you guys are doing. Love to have you more involved. Been talking lots to Omer about that and uh, anything we can get you up here doing. We just love to you to be part of British Columbia. And now that you're guiding up here and have the outfitting territory, that's uh, we can maybe leverage that a bit too. So. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate it. I think on, uh, uh, Omer asked me to speak at the, I think I'm speaking now. Um, I'm not sure if that's <laughs> set in stone um, at, at your banquet, if I'm not mistaken. He had asked me to do that and I'm more than, than happy to. So Yeah, absolutely. We're, uh, we, we've been marketing it. So I guess, I guess you're doing it uh, whether you like it or not now that uh, Omer's committed you. So no, we're totally stoked about it. It's in Penticton, which is cool because that's your new guide area. And yeah. uh good part of the world and and everyone's super stoked about you coming up and uh but uh anyway, I've taken a lot of your time today. I know you're going hunting tomorrow. you got a bunch of stuff to get together for that and just appreciate all you do and uh really stoked to see you up here this winter and and wish you all the best this fall, certainly on your mule deer hunt here next week. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. and yeah, obviously whatever you guys need I mean, it's funny with Omer not to lengthen this out. I knew Omer from forums from like 12 years ago <laughs> and he and I have obviously come like great friends ever since then, but no, I'm, I'm super happy to support you guys in whatever way I can. And I'm glad, you know, it's going to be great to go over there and speak and hang out with you guys. So yeah, I, I appreciate everything and appreciate being on the, the podcast. So. Well, we're super stoked. And are you, was he rubber fist on the forums that you were on? Yep. 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 Cause, cause that's his handle and shit. I, I back in the day, I, my first, uh, you know, high-end optic I bought. It was, uh, I was on one of the forums and rubber fist was talking about, Oh, all this stuff. And, and, uh, and he was selling Saguaro stuff and I'm like, Oh shit. Okay. So I started looking around and he had some pretty competitive pricing. And then the, I'm like, and then, you know, I got his contact info and reached out to him and that's how marketing was done back in the day. This was literally 20 plus years ago. And, uh, so I, all of a sudden I buy this $3,500 spotter and I'm all <laughs> stoked. And then, and then I look and it's from Aroma Foods. I'm like, Aroma Foods. I'm like, who the hell is? And I'm like, oh my God, I just sent somebody 3,500 bucks to uh, some imposter off the internet. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I finally found Aroma Foods on Swarovski's website. Of course, he's rebranded since then, but uh, yeah, yeah it was scared the hell out of me for a bit there. I thought I'd bought uh, rubber dog shit from someone in China or something. So, well, has he ever told you how we met? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, well, I can tell you now, or he can tell you. It's up to you. No, I, I want to hear it. Tell the story. So please. it was on a bow site, um, which is a a, 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 a a internet forum where you know a bunch of people live in their mom's basement, talk shit back and forth to each other, right? So he went and he posted an entire story of him going on a mountain goat hunt and and, and killing a mountain goat solo, and I think his shot was like seventy one yards at the goat, and I didn't know. 
Omer or rubber fist at all. So I'm like reading the story, right? And I'm reading the comments. And of course, like the peanut gallery pops in, like he's unethical. He's a piece of shit. And I'm like, so I got on there and I was like, guys, like he went in solo and killed a mountain goat and packed it out on his own. And 71 yards for an accomplished bow hunter is not that far. And so I'm like battling it out, like with internet, you know, heroes or whatever for, for Omer. And I don't know who he is. And that's how, that's the short version of how he and I, Matt and we've been friends ever since. So that's like the short version of that. So yeah, that's awesome. That was like yeah, 2009. Is that right? Eh? Yeah. I think I read that story and it's, yeah, he's obviously gifted orator, right? Or storyteller. It's, it's a hell of a story. Yeah. He's just, I mean, Omer's a good dude, no matter what. I mean, and, and I think when he rebranded precision optics, we sell good Kafaro packs through him. So for, you know, for me, he's a great guy, great company. I mean, he's just a good dude. So I'm glad that uh, whatever way I can help him out, it, you know, I'm always, you know, fully supportive of him. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's he's definitely a good egg for sure. And we're certainly lucky to to have him as a, one of our conservation partners. So awesome, Aaron. Well, uh, thank you so much. We're stoked to see you in February and uh, look forward to it and appreciate your time today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.